Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Joel chapter 3. Finish, finish, finishing up this short book in the Old Testament, this minor prophet of Joel this evening. Joel chapter 3. If you listen to the average TV preacher or read the latest self-help book it's written by a Christian author, they'll tell you that that God is a way that we can achieve our, end, our whatever ends we please. That if we just tap into this God, then He will give us everything that we need for life. And so God becomes no more than something like a Santa Claus where He can just fulfill and satisfy all of our wishes. That if we need health or money or a child or a home or a job or promotion, car, prosperity, respect, a great future, then we can just go to this God. And what these TV preachers and writers will tell you is that the most important thing with regard to our relationship to God is you. It is what you can get out of it. How much you can squeeze out of this God. But, but when we read in the Bible... Specifically, in the Minor Prophets, we find that God is not about us, specifically or primarily. He's about Himself, and we should be as well. The, the only thing that, that these false teachers value about God is what He gives us. He becomes this impersonal principle by which they can get everything that they want in life. And this type of thinking fails to recognize what our Savior both saved us from, that is, God's wrath, just as we read, that God's wrath will be poured out in uh, at the great white throne judgment and even prior to that during the tribulation. So God saves us from that. And it also fails to recognize what our Savior saved us to. God made us. He made the world. He made everything in it. And now He invites us as sinful people into a holy fellowship with Him through Jesus Christ where He should have judged us. He should have given us the just desert that we deserved. We should have received His wrath, but instead He wants to enter into a fellowship with us as sinful people unlike Him in many ways. That is extraordinary to think about. But that is the grace of God and salvation. That God has come in the person of Christ to save us from our sins and bring us back into a right relationship with God just like it once was in the garden. The message that we have here in, uh, throughout the Bible is that God is restoring His people to Himself. We once had this nice fellowship. Adam and Eve had this perfect fellowship with God where they could walk in the garden with God. And then that, that fellowship was breached because of their sin. And now the rest of, from Genesis 3 on to the end of Revelation, we find that God is working to restore that relationship. To come back to a place where He can rightfully, justly, and even holily enter into a relationship with His people. But in order for Him to do that, 
he has to make a way for that to happen. And obviously we know that that happened through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That the only way that we can stand rightly before God and have a right relationship with Him and be confident that one day sin and death will be put away with for those who call them call themselves Christians, those who are believers, then it is through Jesus Christ. God made every person, and the amazing thing that we are going to see here this evening is that God wants to dwell with His people forever. Let's read Joel chapter 3, and we'll read the entire chapter. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. And they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, in all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a, a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory, behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit the judge and the surrounding, all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood." But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Tonight we're going to see that God will restore His people by, by destroying those who oppose Him. 
just to give you a little background, in chapter 1 we saw the prophet talking about an immediate disaster, one that was had just taken place, and that was the recent locust outbreak that had taken place in Israel. Chapter 2, he he uses the illustration or the example of the locust outbreak as an illustration of what will happen on the day of the Lord in the future when God will pour out His judgment on those who oppose Him. And he calls in chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, he calls for repentance of the people, that they would turn to Him, that the people in Joel's time would recognize that God's judgment is near, it's coming, and they need to repent just as we do. And if so, God would restore both the drought and the destruction that came about from the locust plague, chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, and the future crisis, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And that restoration would be seen in God's blessing on the nations. We saw that at the end of chapter 2. And then today we're going to see that He's going to bless the nations by punishing or destroying those nations who oppose God and His people. And so that's the background of, of where we're at. Let me let me have you turn your attention to verses 1 and 2 because the first thing that Joel shows us here is a promise of God's future judgment. A promise of God's future judgment. The judgment in verses 1 and 2 is this, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, think Israel there, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. The judgment of the Gentile nations. This is the people who during that time had opposed Israel, had put them out away from their country, had exiled them. This, this judgment that Joel is referring to here in verses 1 and 2 is the judgment that takes place immediately after the tribulation. It's done here, we see in verse 2, in the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, it's not clear where this valley is. You remember there was a king of Judah whose name was Jehoshaphat. And so we think, well, maybe it was a place where he resided or a place where he had some significant battle. Maybe that's where this place is going to be. But what we have to remember is that Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. So I don't think there's any connection to the king himself. I think it just is a reference to the fact that God is going to judge the people who are opposed to him in this valley, which he calls the valley that the Lord judges. Some people think that it's in the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley was a, a large area of land that was between Jerusalem on the west and the Mount of Olives on the east. And so if someone wanted to go up to the Mount of Olives, they'd have to go down this Kidron Valley and then all the way up to, to the Mount of Olives. Some people think that that's where God's going to enact this judgment. The people who will be involved in this judgment are those living Gentiles who survived the, the tribulation. You remember that during the tribulation, you're going to have a lot of people being judged for their sin, for rejecting God, rejecting Christ as King. And those people who survived that tribulation, even unbelieving people will survive that tribulation, those people will now be judged immediately following the tribulation. 
at this judgment of the Gentile nations which will take place in the Kidron Valley. Now this is not a corporate judgment in that you bring the whole nation before before God and He's going to decide what He's going to do based on the whole nation. This is more an individual judgment similar to um, what we would think of as uh, those people who are Americans. It's not that God would come and judge America, but he, that He's going to judge Americans. He's going to judge individuals. Now, in this time, He's, he's referring to just anybody who's, who has survived the tribulation. The point is that it's going to be an individual judgment. And the basis for God's judgment is whether or not they accept the kingdom message. Immediately following the tribulation, you're going. Uh, the the believers who survive the tribulation will immediately go into the the kingdom, and uh, there will be people who will be offered the kingdom during that time. That is, they will be offered this opportunity to be saved, to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and accept this kingdom message. And this is what we find in Matthew chapter 25. Let me have you turn there. Matthew chapter 25. This passage in Matthew has often, has for years baffled me as to what exactly it meant until uh, I studied through this passage in Joel. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is giving this address to his disciples, and he talks about the, the, sheep's, the sheep being separated from the goats. Look at verse 31 with me. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then look down to verse 41, if you would. Then he will also say to those on his left, remember those are the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And then look down to verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, that is the goats, but the righteous into eternal life. So what Jesus is referring to here is the judgment of the Gentile nations. That those who survive the tribulation, Jesus will separate them, sheep and goats. He will take the sheep and say, you're now able to enter into my kingdom. The goats, he's going to send them to punishment. Now they're going to be raised back up uh, at the great white throne judgment to be judged finally and, and, and sent to hell forever. But this is the judgment where it basically, since they didn't accept the kingdom message, they are sent to, um, to Hades or to hell until, until the, the future judgment. So I've been talking a lot about end time prophecy and what's going to happen. So let me give you a little bit of a timeline in pictorial form. Hopefully you can see that well. The... The next thing in the prophetic history that we're waiting for, okay, there's nothing else that we need to happen before Christ returns. Do you realize that? 
There's nothing more that needs to happen on the historical calendar. The next thing that's going to happen is the rapture. The rapture of Jesus Christ. And that's where Jesus Christ takes all of His saints up to heaven, all the church saints, all the people who are still alive and have professed faith in Jesus Christ, or I should say have confessed faith in Jesus Christ, they will be taken up to heaven with Jesus to be delivered from this future tribulation. Now, immediately following the rapture, there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. And this is this is not a bad judgment. This is not a place where God's going to look at all of our sins and say, why'd you do this and why'd you do that? It's actually because, because remember, we are justified. No longer can God look at our sin and, and say, why did you do that? Or, or I have to judge you for that. Because Christ already took our judgment upon us, do you see? And so this judgment seat of Christ will be a joyful time. We could relate it to a commencement exercise, a graduation. When we, we look at all of, when, when uh, God, through Jesus Christ, evaluates all of our post-salvation works, God looks at what we have done for Him and, and, and gives honor to, to whom honor is due. Gives, gives out crowns at this time. This will not be a sad time for us. Certainly we will regret that we didn't do certain things, but like graduation, we're, the joy that, that comes with having graduated far outweighs the frustration of, of not doing enough for God. Immediately following the judgment seat of Christ, Immediately following the rapture begins the seven-year tribulation here on the earth. And that is where God's wrath is poured out on the nations. And remember, it, 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 it comes to a peak where the Antichrist takes his reign at the three and a half years. And he then institutes this idea where everyone has to take the mark of the beast or they die. And there's going to be much bloodshed during this time. God's wrath is going to be poured out in significant ways. And it will culminate at the end of the seven-year tribulation in the battle of Armageddon, where Christ's army wins over Satan's army. And then following the seven-year tribulation is the 75 days. It's not exactly clear what the 75 days is for, what the purpose is here on the earth. It could be just to clean up all the mess here on the earth because... During the kingdom time, we will live on this earth. And you can imagine the amount of bloodshed that there would be. And so the 75 days may be just a time for that. But, but as far as God is concerned, it is a time of judgment of the Old Testament saints. Again, a good, a good judgment. A time in which they're rewarded. And also the tribulation martyrs will have their time before God um, at this time as well. Following the 75 days is the kingdom. This is the time when Christ reigns as king here on earth. Now, there will be people who, uh, particularly children or um, people who are born during the kingdom time, who will have an opportunity to reject God, if that seems even possible. Among that many people who are living in glorified bodies, there will be people who who pretend as if they're they're following the king. But what happens is once they commit a sin, uh, then the king acts in, in perfect judgment. 
And that sin will not be allowed to reign like it does now in this sin-cursed world that we live in. Those people will be punished immediately and sent to, to hell because they are being judged and, and because this world is being run by, uh, governed by a perfect King, Jesus Christ. And that will be a great joy for us to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Following the kingdom will be the great white throne judgment. And this is when, by the way, what I didn't mention during the kingdom is that Satan will be bound. We read that tonight in Revelation 20, that Satan will be bound in the abyss for 1,000 years. So he will be unable to come and, and do harm to believers. He will be unable to come and try to persuade people uh, in the wrong way. And then at the great white throne judgment, he's brought back up to be judged by God with all the other fallen angels as well as all unbelievers of all time. Okay, I said that there is a judgment of the Gentile nations, but that's simply a judgment of their sin, meaning that they're going to be destroyed here on the earth. Their final judgment will be at the great white throne judgment. And that's where all unbelievers will be judged of all time. And then following the great white throne, there will be a new heaven and a new earth in the eternal state. And what we're talking about here in Joel chapter 3 is the day of the Lord. That is the time between the rapture and the end of the kingdom. Okay, That 1,007 years is the time that, that is referred to in the Scriptures as the day of the Lord. And that is what Joel is referring to here. So that gives you a little bit of background of, of where we're at and, and where Joel is going with this because he is talking about future judgment. And so we see the, the uh, promise of God's future judgment in verses 1 and 2. And now we see the response to God's future judgment. Notice the response to God's future judgment in verses 3 through 8. Well, let's begin in the second half of verse 2. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations as they have divided up my land. The first thing that we see with regard to the reason for God's future judgment is that this is done in a courtroom scene type setting. Okay, if you're like me, you like to watch uh, court court uh, shows or movies. Um, I, I like to find out what goes on in courtrooms. I like to see judgment come down on the wicked. I like to see people who are innocent to be vindicated. And what we have here is that very situation. The, the courtroom scene is this. Verses 2 and 3, you have the accusations read. I will enter into judgment. This is why you're, you're, I am enacting judgment upon you. Verses 2 and 3. The nations have basically set themselves up in a position to reverse the redemptive work of Israel. You see what happens there in verse 3? They have also cast, cast lots for my people. They traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. At the end of verse 2, it says that they have scattered my people among the nations and they've divided up my land. You see, God was working to, to come and dwell with His people, so He brought them all to Israel, and yet these nations, these Gentile nations, were scattering them. They were selling them in slave trade. And God's saying, you're trying to reverse this redemptive work that I've done to Israel. Do you realize that I, I sent my son to purchase their their uh, freedom. And you're trying to reverse that. 
so the the nations were going to be forced back into slavery be, through the Israelites, that God was going to use them in judgment. So we see the accusations read in verses 2 and 3. And then we have the accused being cross-examined and interrogated in verse 4. It says, Moreover, why are you to me? What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? So the accused are cross-examined. It's as if they're standing in the courtroom and God is bringing the judgment upon them. All right, why are you doing this? Now, the reason he uses these two um, areas here, Phoenicia and Philistia, along with verse 19 where he talks about Egypt and Edom, I think what he's doing here is he's just giving us a representative of all the nations, similar to what we, when we use the phrase that Washington says that this is how we ought to... I mean, we don't mean the state of Washington. We don't even necessarily mean Washington, D.C., the district. We mean the state, uh, the, the entire country. And so these here, Phoenicia and Philistia, become representative of all the nations who oppose God. And the reason that God would enact this revenge is because what He had done to, or what they had done to Him. That Judah would repay, verse 5, the, the robbery of Judah's wealth. That, I'm sorry, the, the nations would repay for the robbery of Judah's wealth and the sale of God's people to the Greek slave traders, verse 6. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see that the tables are turned. So we have the accusations read, verses 2 and 3, the accused are cross-examined, verse 4, and then the verdict is announced. The verdict is announced. The cross-examining doesn't last very long, does it? The second part of verse 4 says this, but if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory, behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation." For the Lord has spoken. The verdict is announced by the judge. Notice how personal God takes this, this, uh, this, this evil that has been enacted upon His people. Look at verse 4. Moreover, why, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on you. And then notice verse 5. Since you have taken, notice whose silver? My silver and my gold and brought my precious treasures to your temples. You see, God takes this personally. That it's not just that these nations have sinned against the people, but who have they sinned against ultimately? They sinned against God. And do you realize that every sin that is committed, that in every sin that is committed, God is the most offended party. We can't say that about ourselves. If someone sinned against you, you can't say, I can't say that, that they've sinned against me as well. Because I'm not you. And they haven't done anything to me. They may have robbed your house or, or done something, but they haven't done anything to me. But whenever we sin, or whenever any unbelieving person sins, they not only sin against the person, 
They sin against God. The most famous example comes from Psalm chapter 51. You remember a man by the name of King David. King David had uh, decided that he wanted to have a relationship with this woman named Bathsheba. And so he sent for this this uh, lady and had an immoral relationship with her. But he, he being the king, thought that he could he could cover this up a little bit. He could take care of this. I know what I'll do. I'll send... I'll send for her husband who's out at battle for me and I'm going to have him come and I'll give him a little vacation and he can spend some time with his wife and then he'll think that the baby has come from from him. Well, it doesn't happen because when Uriah comes back, he's concerned about the people out of the battlefield, isn't he? And so instead, he doesn't go to have any relations with his wife like David expected. He slept on the porch of David's uh, uh, David's uh, home at that time. And then, because David knew that he was going to be found out, he decided he had to do something. And so David sent a letter to the commander of the army that when Uriah was to go out into battle, that everyone else was supposed to pull back. They would hear some sort of code word and they would all know to pull back. And so that it would look like he just died in battle. And he sent this letter through Uriah himself. That's exactly what happens. The commander gets the message and says, wow, okay, this is kind of brutal, but okay, I'll do it. He does it. Uriah dies. David comes later, a couple months later perhaps, and marries this woman. And, and David had sinned, didn't he? He sinned against several people. Well, the first person that we think that he sinned against was Bathsheba. He should not have committed this act with this woman who was already married. But he also sinned against her husband, Uriah. He sinned against her when he committed the immoral act and when he killed the man. He also sinned against the army because he he basically corrupted them. I mean, now they're thinking, who is this king? He's just going to do whatever he pleases. He doesn't care who he hurts. He's just going to whatever. So now he sinned against them. He sinned against his own family because he's He's gone against the vow that he's taken. We see all these people that David sins against, but what does David say in Psalm chapter 51? He says, Behold, against you, speaking to God, and you only have I sinned. Well, David, you sinned against lots of people. How could you say that you only sinned against God? You sinned against God because God is always the most offended party. God is always the most offended when we sin. Because when we sin, we're not just sinning against that person. We're sinning against His holy character and what He has demanded of us. And it, it, it causes uh, pain to Him in the, in the sense that his, his Son had to endure it. His Son had to endure that, that sin that we have committed against Him. And so that, this is why God takes it so personally here in verses 4-8. through eight. You have taken my silver and my gold and my precious treasure and you've taken it to your temples and you've sinned against my people. And so we find the, the, the result of this verdict. And there's basically two ways that a lawsuit what, uh, in the ancient Near East was resolved. There were two ways. One, the instructions 
on how to deal with the breach in relationship or how to heal the breach in relationship were given. Okay, so if, if I caused some, some sort of um, criminal thing against you and the judge came down with a verdict, then he would say, this is what you need to do in order to make recompense for, for what you have done. So that's the first way. Talk Instructions on how to heal the problem. The second way is through threat of military judgment. That because you've done this, this is what's going to happen to you. We, we know this uh, very clearly as capital punishment, which we see as um, prescribed in the Scriptures. That when, when someone sheds man's blood, by, blood shall his, or by man shall his blood be shed. That is, if you take the life of someone who is made in the image of God, okay, humans, then you, your life will be taken from you because God has put the government over, um, in, in control over you and so, th- those are the two ways that these lawsuits could be resolved. One, instructions on, heal- on how to heal the rela- relationship. And two, military judgment. What do you suppose is happening here? The second one, right? God brings down the verdict and He's not saying, okay, this is your last chance. This is how you can heal the relationship. At this point, it's too late, isn't it? God has already decided. He has already come and enacted his judgment. So, in verses 9 through 16, Joel resumes the theme that he had in verses 1 through 3, and that is the gathering of the nations to the earthly courtroom, the valley of Jehoshaphat. The sentence has been handed down, and it's time for the judge to order his agents to the scene of execution of the execution. Verses 9 through 16 talk about the description of judgment on the day of the Lord. The description of judgment on the day of the Lord. We notice five things in these verses. First, a call to war in verses 9 through 11. A call to war. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. This is a mock call to war. God is calling all the Gentile people. He's saying, come, it's time to do battle. They think that they're going to come and and do battle against God and His forces. And they think they actually have a chance to win. And so God says, come, come, bring bring all of your weapons. Bring all of your people. He says, prepare all your mighty men, all your soldiers. Take your plowshares and prune them into weapons. Take your pruning hooks and turn them into spears. Let even the weak person in, in your society, even bring them, even bring the little ones, bring them into battle. And what, what he was going to do was he was going to enact judgment on them. And so the irony that we see here that the, is that the nations are told to get themselves ready for battle, unaware that the Lord of heaven was going to enact judgment on them, that they were going to be the ones that would be defeated. And when they got to that valley, they would be standing there with the incriminating evidence in their own hands of the violence that that filled their history. That in order for them to win against God, they would just destroy His people. And God's saying, look at what you have in your hands. You have this evidence, these weapons 
of, of destruction that you're trying to destroy me and my people. And now I'm going to destroy you because you have not accepted my son. And so in verse 11, he summons the warriors to the battle site. This is the heavenly warriors, the people who will be on God's side. Look at the second part of verse 11. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So first we have a call to war. He brings the, the Gentile nations out to do battle, and then he brings the, the uh, army of heaven to execute his judgment. Secondly, we see a challenge to the nations. Verse 12, Let all the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I sit to judge all the surrounding nations. What was expected by the nations was that there was going to be a battle that was taking place. But instead, they find that there's not going to be a battle at all, but rather that the Lord's verdict would come down upon them, that His judgment would be sure and would be final. So a challenge to the nations. Verse 13, we see a call for God's army to win. We go back to to God speaking in verse 12. Verses 9-11, through 11, Joel was speaking. Now we have God speaking in verses 12 and 13. And this is what He says in verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. This imagery that Joel uses to describe the day of the Lord, the judgment that will come, is the same imagery that we find in Revelation chapter 14, verse 15 when God says that the battle of Armageddon, I'm going to press these people like a wine press, for the harvest has come. Now, when we think of a harvest, we normally think of a time of joy, a time when, when, when the nations will enjoy all the, the crops that have come in over, over the uh, last several months. But for the nations, this harvest would not be a time of joy at all. It would be a time of destruction. And God says in verse 13 that I am going to trample you like grapes. They are cut down like wheat during harvest. Remember Jesus said that, that, um, that the people who follow Him are like wheat and Satan has come and he's mixed in some seed that turn out to be tares and they grow among the wheat and, and some of the, the people who are working for the farmers say, why don't we go and tear down, uh, tear down all the tares so that the wheat can grow? And Jesus says, no, leave them alone. Let them all grow together, and then at the end, I'm going to take the wheat and, and, and remove them from the tares. And the tares will be sent to an eternal, eternal punishment. They will be destroyed. And the wheat will be, will be my harvest of, of, uh, of what I have done. And so he uses this type of imagery that, that, that God will, will come and enact this judgment just like a harvest... A, a, uh, a farmer would come and sickle, put a sickle to his harvest. This is a very graphic illustration. It gets even worse when he talks about the, the uh, trampling like grapes or the wine press that will be full. Now, if you can picture this valley of Jehoshaphat, we find in Revelation that this valley will, will be for 200 miles. For 200 miles. And when God enacts judgment on them, the blood will flow up to the bridle of the horses for 200 miles. This is going to be a very graphic time in human history 
It's, it's a graphic picture of, of how much God hates sin. That God will come in there. You can picture the vats in the Old Testament times that they would use. They would fill them up with grapes. These great huge vats, and then and then people would come in, pull up their cloak, and and stamp on these grapes, and and the juice would flow down through the the little stones that they would have in the bottom. And and God says, "This is what my judgment will be like. I will come in and trample them like grapes, till the wine press is full." The army of the nations assembled for battle in the valley. But really, they were gathering to the winepress of God. That God would pour out His wrath on His people. And if we think that is a graphic picture of how much God hates sin, that is nothing in comparison to hell. Hell is, is, is millions times worse, infinitely worse than what that will be like. Because that destruction will be momentary, but hell will be eternal. There will not be a time for those people to escape. They will be in eternal torment, separated from God forever. And if you think God doesn't care about sin, then, then, then you need to think about how He judges sin, how He will judge sin. So, we have the, uh, the call to war, verses 9-11, through 11, the challenge to the nations, verse 12, the call for God, God's army to win, verse 13, and then verses 14 through 16, we see the desperation of the people in God's future judgment. Joel is speaking here in verses 14 through 16. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. As the multitude of soldiers gather, they come to this, what's now called the Valley of Decision. Now, you, you may have heard this in an evangelistic setting. A lot of times what you'll hear is evangelists use this phrase. Multitudes, multitudes are out there in the crowd in the Valley of Decision trying to determine what to do. But that's really an invalid way to use this, this phrasing. Because that's not at all what's happening. These people are not standing there in the valley of Jehoshaphat with a, with an, a choice on their hands, or a choice on their minds. Well, we'll have to decide what we, how we want to respond. There's no decision for them. The reason it's called the valley of decision is because it's also called the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of the Lord judging. The Lord has already made the decision, you see. We could also call it, one translator calls it, the valley of the verdict. The verdict has come down and it's time now for God's decision to be enacted. It was the valley where the Lord judges. But now it's called the valley where the Lord has chosen or the Lord has judged. He has decided. And so we find in verse 15 that the sky grows dark. And then in verse 16, the Lord, the Lord emerges from His dwelling place in Jerusalem. And we see him pictured as a lion. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. The Lord is pictured as a refuge, that he is a lion. And lion is often symbol of destruction. And he will be that sort of symbol for the nations. But for us, 
He will be a symbol of refuge. It will be as if we have Him on our side on the leash and He's ready to do battle for us. And we cannot be taken away at that point. We cannot be destroyed in any way. The Lord is on our side. He is our refuge. And the, the proof that His enemies will be destroyed is that God will come to their, rest, their refuge. Notice the commitment that, that we have here at the end of verse 16 from God. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. The Lord will be our refuge. The battle here in verses 9-16 through 16 is referring to the battle of Armageddon. We could read that in, Ver- in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14-16. through 16. We don't have time to turn there, so I'll just uh, give you that reference. Revelation 14, 14-16. You'll see the same sort of imagery where God comes with a sickle and, and destroys those people who are opposed to Him. But what I really want to point your attention to tonight is verses 17 through 21, and that is the certainty of the Lord's dwelling with His people. The certainty of the Lord's dwelling with His people. The purpose of God's judgment is seen in verse 17. Why does God do all this? Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it, no more. For Israel, for all of God's people, this would be a dawn of a new era. It would be a time when God's people would know that He is in their midst. His presence would be in Mount Zion, as it says in verse 17. And never again, at the end of the verse, it says, will they be destroyed or will they be taken away by any foreign invaders? God will dwell with His people. God's great purpose here is to let the whole world see that He dwells with His image bearers who are, are responding or reflecting His character. God longs to dwell with His people and here He will do it. He will do it eternally. The only true security that we have presently and we have for the future comes from God's presence. That God will be with us. That He will not be against us. That There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is our hope. And so in verses 18-21, through Joel gives us the benefit of God's future judgment. Verse 18, we see that Israel would experience great agricultural blessing. Where once there was drought, the prophet describes the mountains containing great luxuries. Look at verse 18. And in that day... The mountain will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to, the, to water the valley of Shittim. Where once there was drought, now there's going to be great luxuries. Wine, milk, and water would be so plentiful that it would, it would flow down into the valleys. It would be a great source of... of uh, of agriculture for them. And this is in contrast to what we had seen before. Remember when the locusts came through and destroyed everything. And they were left helpless. This idea of the water flowing from the temple simply uh, is a symbol of the nation's prosperity. It's a reminder that, that ultimately our source is in God. The source of our joy, the source of everything that we receive comes from God. 
verse chapter 1 we saw that the the temple had been deprived of these things of grain and all these these sacrifices that should have been there and now God says I'm going to restore them and I'm going to restore them permanently I'm going to bring great prosperity and he calls it the valley of Shittim here at ver- the end of verse 18 uh or we could translate the valley of acacias and this is basically a desert region and the point here is that even the springs flow in the, the driest places. This is how great the fertility will be during that time. That even the driest places will flow with water. Now, turn back to chapter 1, verse 10, because I want to show you the contrast of, of where we have come, from where we have come. Chapter 1, verse 10. The field is ruined. The land mourns. For the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. At that time, they had been destroyed because of the locusts and then this huge drought came in and they were left helpless. And in chapter 3, we see that God comes to His people's aid. God's people in every generation rest secure in the hope that this kingdom that He has promised will be a time of great prosperity where Christ will reign over all the earth. Revelation 21.3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, in order for us to understand the significance of this passage here in Joel, I think it would be helpful for us to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. What should our response be to what God has planned in future blessing for us and future judgment for all those who oppose Him? How should we respond? And from these verses in 1 Peter, I think our response ought to be amazement and service. Amazement because of what God has done for us. Amazement because of the down payment that He has given to us, His Holy Spirit. That one day His Spirit will be poured out on all the nations. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 and coming to Him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, that is Jesus Christ, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's a few things that I want to point out in these verses. Verse 5, that we ought to be holy. That we ought to offer ourselves as sacrifices. Verse 6, that we ought to fix our hope on the cornerstone. Fix our hope on Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God chose you to proclaim the excellencies of His grace, but you are a chosen race. And notice the second part, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why? Why have we been called out? Why do we proclaim the excellencies of Him? Because the stone has has not become a stumbling block for you. It's not a rock of offense to you as it is to the nations. It is a cornerstone. It is our foundation. Something on which we can stand. And then the end of the last verse there, verse 10, is just an incredible statement when you think about it. Because you were, you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see? You used to be those people who, who were, are standing in judgment before God. But now you're not. So, so Peter says, because you are, then live like it. Offer yourself as, sacri- as a sacrifice to God. Live holy. Live like God is your refuge. Like God will protect you from, from anything, including the wrath to come. He's saying live like it. Do you believe that? Do you, do you recognize that truth? Do you recognize what Christ has done for you? Are you trusting in Him alone to be the one who stands in your place? That nothing you can do can, can get you to a point where you're standing up at the top of the valley looking down instead of in it. Nothing you can do. It's only on the basis of Christ and His righteousness. And so what Peter is showing us, and I think what Joel is showing us, is that that we, apart from God, are worthless servants. We're worthless sinners. And we deserve to be a part of that valley of decision. We deserve to be in that valley of Jehoshaphat where God will pour out His judgment. And that the only reason that we're standing up on the mountain looking down is not because of anything that we have done. The only reason that we have been saved from God's wrath to come, that we have been saved from being trampled like grapes and sent into an eternal fire in hell, is not because we were good enough or God really looked down on us and really liked us, but because of His mercy, because of His grace. See what Peter says there? Once you were a people who had not received mercy, but now you have. Now you have received the mercy of God, so live like it. Live with a heart of praise to God. Live a holy life. Live 
with your lives as a sacrifice to God. I think one of the songs uh, that that I listen to often helps shed some light and and show us the, the greatness of God's grace. It's called, It Was His Grace. It says, It was His grace that saved me. It was His grace that set me free. Free from sin's darkness. Free from sin's debt. Free from sin's death penalty. And it just wasn't His grace. It is His grace that keeps me. It is His grace that gives me victory from sin's dominion and from sin's reign through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. This grace has brought me safe this far and this grace will lead me home. Are you resting in the great grace that comes from our our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ? Are you enjoying that grace? Are you responding rightly to it? Or do you take it for granted? Do you think you deserved it in some way? No. God's grace is a result of His good pleasure, His choosing. Once we were not a people, once we had not received His mercy, but now we do. So we ought to look with great joy on what God has done for us. That He has rescued us from the valley of Jehoshaphat and put us up on the mountain so we can look down and enjoy His blessing and the promise of His Son reigning over us forever. Won't that be a great day? Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, when we look at at something like this in, in your prophet Joel, we admit that we are sobered to think of how holy You are. We, like Isaiah, stand before You and, and say about ourselves, Woe to us! We are a, a person undone. And we live among people who, who have unclean lips. We are sinners. You are holy. And we recognize our worthlessness before You. We recognize Your greatness more more evidently than we had before because of Your Word. We thank You for showing that to us. We pray that You'd help us to live as if we understand it. That we understand that, that Your grace is what saved us. It was not by works of righteousness which we had done, but according to His mercy, Jesus Christ, that He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We bow before You humbly and recognize that You are a great and holy God and we deserve nothing but Your wrath. But for us, You chose that that would not be the case. That we would not incur Your wrath but instead we would incur Your blessing. For some reason, You you chose us. And we don't understand it. And so all we can do is cry out to You and say, Why, God? Why would You do this to us? We don't deserve it. 
And because we recognize the depth of Your grace and we recognize how far we have come because of Your grace, our only proper response is reverence and awe. A reverence for You because of what You have done and a response to Your greatness by serving You, by giving ourselves, as Paul says, as a living sacrifice. Lord, help us to see how how vain we are at times. Reveal to us our sin and how much we go after the things of this world so often and so frequently and with such great passion. And show to us how we ought to turn to You and be constantly turning from our sin and becoming more and more holy so that we can please You and exalt our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we deserved the wrath that You are going to bring out on the nations. We deserve the wrath that You brought out on Your Son, Jesus Christ. But but You have shown Your grace to us. And Lord, we pray that we would never take Your grace, Your salvation for granted, but that we would be constantly loving You and showing our affection for You because of what You have done. That our motivation to serve You in everything would be because of the mercies that You have shown to us. The mercies that are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness. We exalt You this evening as God of heaven and of the future. And we give ourselves to You. And we pray that You would get allow Your Spirit to work within us so that we can stay true to these commitments that we have made within our hearts and so that we can follow You in a way that would be pleasing to You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.